Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's episode is an episode I've been waiting to do for a really long time for two reasons. Number one, I've been following Dr. Jose Antonio's work for so long, it's pretty ridiculous. He is the leading researcher on protein, and he has been for years. So I've been reading his stuff for so long. I mean, he is one of the leading researchers when it comes to just publishing studies as well. So I've been reading his research reviews for literally years. I mean, he's been in the game for so long. So even before I had a podcast, I've been wanting to talk with this guy. So it was really cool to have him on the show. And the second reason is because we had to cancel this episode like three times. (laughs) It took us a while. Um, The first time he got sick, the next time I had some baby duties to cover, like we kept going back and forth playing email tag. And then we finally got a day like last minute. It was literally like he hit us up and said, yo, I can do it tomorrow. And I cleared my schedule. I was like, let's do this. And it was a really, really fun conversation. Um, I think you guys are going to enjoy the talk simply because he is a very outgoing and energetic guy, which is a change of pace. When you hear a scientist who is literally in the lab testing this stuff, they are not always the most upbeat guys. But this dude is hilarious. He's really fun to talk to. It's very engaging. He's very enthusiastic about what he does. And on top of that, he knows everything there is to know about protein. So we got into the details when it comes to the biggest protein myths, how much protein you actually need. Is protein overfeeding actually going to kill your kidneys? Um, What diseases can you get from eating too much protein? Um, Whey protein, vegan protein, how much protein per meal, the anabolic window, like literally every question you could probably think of when it comes to protein in general. I think I asked this guy and I think we went into it. And the cool thing was is Number one, I was happy to hear that a lot of the practices I practice and a lot of the things I preach were correct, and that's partially due to me following a lot of his research, but it was just awesome to have a realistic opinion and a very, again, energetic and enthusiastic answer about every single question um, and rabbit hole I took him down. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this show. Now, One more thing, guys. I say it every time, and I'm going to say it again because you guys have been doing it for me, and I appreciate it so much. If you love this podcast, if this podcast has given you a lot of good benefits, good knowledge, good results, whatever it may be, or just helping you pass the time when you're sitting in traffic and you like the show – Please take a screenshot of your phone right now while listening to this episode. Tag me on Instagram. I don't believe Dr. Jose Antonio is on Instagram, but if you do it on Facebook, tag us both. Snapchat, whatever you do it, post it up. Tag us. Let me know what you like about the show. Let me know who's listening. I want to have a conversation with you. Last but not least, guys, if you want to donate to the cause and help us grow this show, literally, you can also donate to the Boom Boom Performance podcast by visiting patreon.com slash boom boom performance or clicking the link in the profile. Now, without any further ado, let's smash some protein myths with Dr. Jose Antonio. All right, Dr. Jose Antonio, I am super pumped to have you on the show. As I mentioned uh, before we started recording, I've been a big fan of yours and everybody in the Facebook group kind of raved when I said you were coming on. So I'm excited to talk about one of the most controversial topics um, in the nutrition space. So before we get into that, can you just give uh, an introduction for yourself in a nutshell if people don't know who you are? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've been around a bit longer than most. Um, the controversial topic you mentioned uh, dietary protein actually goes back to when I was an undergrad and just a brief uh, history of myself I did my undergraduate education at the American University uh, way back when Ronald Reagan was president so I don't know if you know American history but <laughs> it was a long time ago um, and then I got a master's degree uh, from Kent State University in Ohio and then I did my PhD as well as a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and that's in Dallas Texas 
And since then, this is back in the early 90s when I got my PhD and I did a postdoc. A lot of people don't realize I actually worked half of my time, not in academia, but I actually worked in industry. I, uh, I was the science editor for Muscle and Fitness way back in the 90s. I actually owned a coffee company for a while, for about six years, uh, owned a coffee company. We grew it, managed it, and sold it. Um, also, I'm the founder of one of the co-founders of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. We hold a lot of conferences um, that focus you know, primarily on sports nutrition and dietary supplements. And currently, I'm at Nova Southeastern University in Davie, Florida. It's right outside of Fort Lauderdale. And as you know, a lot of my recent work has focused on the role of protein, especially protein overfeeding, um, how it affects body composition, health, and things like that. So, so most of my days are spent either teaching, doing research, or uh, writing manuscripts, or working to you know uh, organize conferences for the ISSN. So what got you into specifically protein then? Because obviously you have a long list of educational backgrounds. So I'm assuming you've probably studied quite a bit of things and it's really impressive, but what made you go towards that protein path? You know, what's ironic is when I was doing my master's degree, I, I, my master's thesis was on a combination training. What happens when you combine strength and endurance training? Does it affect strength and or endurance? I never really had an intention of going to protein research, even though my advisor at the time his name is Peter Lemon. Most of his work, in fact, all of his work was focused on protein. Uh, I did my PhD in skeletal muscle hypertrophy and hyperplasia. I always had an interest in muscle physiology. I didn't really get into sports nutrition until later because there really wasn't, well, one, there really wasn't much science. If you go back to the 90s, there's hardly anything, any science in sports nutrition. So my, my sort of venture into, into sports nutrition and specifically protein it's more out of the fact that there was a huge vacuum um, in, in science. And in fact, most of the academics who worked in, in the nutrition field, for whatever weird reason, and it still exists, they had this almost a priori, a priori negative view of protein, which I thought was really odd because there's only, well, there's only three things you could eat if you count alcohol, that's four, carbs, fat, and protein, okay, and then alcohol. So why did they have such a negative view of protein, which I always thought was bizarre because you got to eat protein, <laughs> it's food. And so many years ago, I'd say, God, uh, five, six, seven years ago, I would have all these random conversations with bodybuilders. Um, this basically, hey, how much do you eat? And then how much protein do you eat? And, and it was a recurring theme. And I, and I had seen this for years and years and years. Um, I'd always been a fan of bodybuilding, but I never took part in it. I, you know, I, as you know, I probably, you've probably seen pictures of me paddling around Florida. I'm always on a paddleboard, um, you know, so, but all these guys and a few girls would mention how much they would eat. And, and despite the fact that we have a large population of people, mainly bodybuilders and, and a few athletes who eat a lot of protein, if you ask the average um, cl clinical nutritionist if, pro if eating a lot of protein is bad, almost all of them will say yes, which I thought, well, if it's so bad, <laughs> why are all these guys and girls who eat a lot of it and who work out seemingly quite healthy? So it was really more of a, you know what, I'm going to do this study just to see what happens, and I can predict what will happen. What will happen is nothing will happen. Uh, I wanted to see if, if guys and girls who ate Two grams, per, uh, uh, two grams per pound body weight, which is, you know, quite a bit. Um, what happens to liver function, kidney function, things like that, and also body composition. And we found in that initial study, eating 4.4 grams per kilo for about two months, 
It didn't do anything. In a, in a way, it was kind of surprising. It's like nothing happened. A lot of them complained that they were hot all the time. They felt full because, of course, they had to eat. Um, there was one girl in particular who said she would literally lay in bed, turn the fan on high because she would be hot and sweaty all day because of the thermic effect of protein. Um, and we found no side effects, no effects on kidneys, uh, liver, and things like that. Yet, even with that, people said, well, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. You just got to do it longer. So we did the one-year study, and we found nothing. Didn't harm anything. And there's still people, as you know, and, and <laughs> the beauty of social media is that everyone has an opinion. And then the worst part of social media is that everyone has an opinion. And, and I remember a friend of mine, he texted me. He's like, hey, give it a day or two. Someone will say, hey, you need to do a two-year or 10-year study. And what do you know? The next day, ah, uh, one-year study, who cares? You got to do it for a long time. You got to do a 10-year study. And I'm like, who the hell is going to do a 10-year study? Nobody. Um, so in a way, it's kind of an amusing thing to see no matter what evidence you present, there will be people who just don't believe it or they don't want to believe it. It's, it's, it's just the most bizarre thing. But in a way, it's kind of entertaining. And I think some of my colleagues in science, they get really frustrated. And I say, hey, this is actually a very entertaining category. If you were in some other category like rocket science where no one understands it, you wouldn't have the general public giving you their opinion. But because we're in a category, everyone, well, not everyone, people who eat, people who work out, they have an opinion. They're going to give your opinion, whether it's stupid or smart, but at least you'll get an opinion. So um, I'm entertained by social media. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> it really is. And it's, it's like you said, it goes both ways. But I'm glad you brought up the study because that was one of the first things I wanted you to mention because – I get asked about protein so frequently. Um, and when I knew, when I read, and I read this a while ago, cause it was quite a while ago you did that study. Um, when I read that you did a study for a year with people eating two times their body weight in protein, it's like, finally somebody at least, and that's not saying that you should be eating that much protein. It just says that like, you're not going to kill yourself or get cancer or die or anything crazy if you eat this much protein. So yeah. my next question would be, what is optimal? What's the optimal amount of protein? Um, I know it's a lot, but maybe not that high. Were there any benefits from a thermic effect to burn more calories because of that protein level and so on and so forth? Yeah, I think you could summarize it uh, one of two ways. One, if you just, if you don't change your training and the only thing you do is eat more protein, generally nothing happens. Body comp doesn't change, liver function, no, nothing changes. But if you eat more protein and change your training, and let's focus on bodybuilding, then we could go to performance sports. But if you look at bodybuilding, um, there's sort of a point upon which any further increase in protein intake probably will not contribute to an increase in lean body mass. However, however, it might contribute to a loss of fat mass. And again, um, for bodybuilding, both are important. Gains in lean mass, loss of fat mass. Now, I've heard arguments from fellow scientists saying that, you know, if you, if you go to about 1.6 to 1.7 grams per kilo of protein intake, anything above that probably won't contribute to an increase in lean body mass. And I'm not sure I completely agree with that. And I, actually, I don't agree with it. I think even if you get marginal increases in lean body mass, tiny increases, it's still important, particularly if that's what your goal is. On the flip side, What's, what I find fascinating among scientists and among dietitians, amongst trainers, is that when you look at the three macronutrients, protein is the only one that they purposefully limit. You don't ever hear people say, well, I think I'm going to limit my carbs to three grams per kilo, or I'm going to limit my fat to one gram per kilo. But if you ask them protein, they're like, 
oh yeah, I'm going to limit it to 1.6 grams per kilo. Well, what about fat and carbs? Oh, well, just eat whatever you need. So they limit protein. They, they put an a priori limit on protein, which makes absolutely no sense. Why? Because there's only, again, three things you eat. If you limit protein, it means you have to eat a lot more of carbs and fat. Now, if you're a physique athlete, that makes no sense. Actually, if, even if you're a performance athlete, let's say you're, uh, let's take the extremes, powerlifting and marathon running. So you have the extremes of strength and endurance. Powerlifters have no, there's no dietary need for, their, for them to bump up carbon fat intake unless they're in a heavyweight class, just, you know, because usually the bigger you are, the stronger you are. If you're in a weight class for powerlifting, you don't want to gain weight, right? What's the best way to not gain weight? Well, limit your carbs and carbon and fat intake, keep your protein elevated so you don't lose lean body mass. Now, if you go to the other end, uh, extreme, the endurance sports, it's a good idea to elevate everything because energy expenditure is so high. So you got to eat a lot of carbs, you got to eat a lot of fat, you got to eat a lot of protein. It makes no sense to purposely limit protein to 1.6 grams per kilo because you have to eat other stuff. I mean, I know guys who, because they expend so much energy doing a combination of endurance and strength work, their protein intake could be well above two grams per kilo just because they need the calories just to, to recover. So to me, I've always found it odd that of the three macronutrients, why do people purposely limit protein? There's not a downside. Even if you go up to three grams per kilo, I can't think of a downside to it. Um, and I personally, I recommend when I talk about strength and endurance athletes, I give them a base. I say hit 2.2 grams per kilo, you're fine. If you go up to three, that's fine too. But if you go three grams per kilo or higher, it's actually kind of difficult. I mean, people who try to eat that much, it becomes work. So there's a pragmatic aspect to it I think people are missing. So obviously there's an upper limit, but the big thing is probably going to be adherence, right? Like what do you, I mean, for me personally, I, I enjoy, I'm a meat eater. I enjoy eating protein. So I tend to eat more than I quote unquote need. Um, but that allows me to adhere to the diet. And I think that's a big piece of it. What changes when fat loss is the goal? Is there a, because this is probably known more in bodybuilding and I've done this personally where I'll go above the like one gram per pound of body weight quite a bit purposely because when I'm trying to get lean, it one is more satiating, but also I have found that it's easier to maintain muscle mass while cutting. Does that play a role? Is there, is there valid uh, validity to bring a protein up to maintain on a cut? Yeah, I think actually what you're doing is, is correct. And actually some of the data we have from our lab basically shows that, that if the goal is just to lose fat mass, let's face it, it's probably easier to lose fat mass than it is to gain muscle mass. I mean, gaining muscle is in a weird way, it's, it's kind of an evolutionary dead end because it, it requires a lot of calories to maintain muscle mass. Um, but to lose fat mass, I think the, the, the critical thing to do is cut back on carbs and fat and do an isocaloric replacement with protein. If you don't change cal, if you go from 2000 calories uh, and, and let's say 50% of that is carbs and then it's 25% fat, 25% protein. If all you did was change the ratio of carbs to protein, you would lose body fat just because protein certainly, the, the thermic effect of protein is certainly exceeds that of carbs. So, and of course, if you want to even lose more body fat, then just cut total calories, uh, which of course includes carbs and fat, but keep protein intake high because at least that'll maintain lean body mass. And I think, you know, a critical strategy anytime your goal is to lose fat mass is to at least maintain lean body mass. So what you're doing is actually correct. Is is that to say that it's harder for the body to actually store protein calories as body fat versus carbs yeah, and fat? Well, yeah, no, that's true because you don't really have a storage depot for protein. And I know if 
you pick up 100 textbooks, it'll say, you know, if you eat an excess of any amount of calories, whether it's protein, carbs, or fat, uh, you'll, you'll store it as fat. Well, you don't really have that mechanism for protein. You can't store it. So what do you do? You got to oxidize it. You got to burn it as fuel. It's just very difficult. And again, most of my studies, the overfeeding was with whey protein. It's very hard to overfeed on chicken breast or steak. One, it's too expensive. Two, you get tired of eating. In fact, there was one subject I had who said, he said, I tried for a week to just overfeed on protein on food, steak, chicken, fish. And he said, he, I couldn't do it. It's one, he said he actually got tired chewing. It was just work to eat. So he said, you know, screw this. I'm just going to, you know, set my alarm clock for whatever, two in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, drink a shake and get my protein in because it's just very difficult to eat that much food if the goal is to get more protein in. Yeah. Um, what about splitting that protein up? What, what is the, because there was, I feel like there's two camps on um, like mu or protein frequency and how many meals a day you should eat. There's a lot of studies that show, you know, if your daily totals are in check, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But then there's the mostly bodybuilders that are like, you got to eat at least four meals a day. You got to spread your protein out evenly to maximize protein synthesis. Um, is there, are there any studies that actually give value to that or is it kind of up in the air? Yeah. Well, those kinds of studies are, are exceedingly difficult to do, particularly if you're using trained people. I know there's some data looking at protein distribution where you don't want to, for instance, if you sort of take a common sense approach, <clears throat> you don't want to eat all your calories in the morning. Let's say you have, the, you know, let's look at percentages. You don't want to eat 80% of your calories in the morning and 20 at night. You also don't want to eat 80% of your calories for dinner and 20 in the morning. In a way, it makes sense to sort of spread those feedings, you know, over whether it's four or five or six meals. One, just because you don't want to be hungry all day, I think there's that. And two, if you're training hard, there's a need to feed post-workout. So you, obviously, you don't want to skip that that frequency, uh, that meal. I think it just makes more sense to consume protein, and again, based on limited data, to consume it, consume a meal containing protein roughly every three to four hours. You know, I look at it this way. We typically eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, get a snack somewhere in the day, and then get a, a snack before you go to bed. You know, for instance, let's say it's casein protein or something like that. So some people would say that's five meals. I, I would say that's three meals and two snacks. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's semantics, but you're feeding yourself five times a day. Okay. So um, speaking of the post-workout, because you said that, and, uh, and I'm glad you broke it up that way because I'm, I'm very similar in that, that range. And, and it's always nice to hear somebody that's actually in the scientist giving <laughs> similar recommendations to what I give my clients. But um, when we talk about post-workout, that's another big controversial thing. What, have, what has science shown and like, what do you recommend? Like, is there a need to actually find that anabolic window? Um, it might be bigger than we think it is, but is there one and, and how important is it? I think, I think part of the problem with looking at the post-workout feeding opportunity is that um, the ter I think the term anabolic window sort of, sort of it, it may not be the best term um, that there's, you know, this window because it suggests the window opens and closes. Um, I tend to look at this very pragmatically. Um, it, it is clear that the total amount of protein you consume during, throughout the day is most important. But at the same time, no one eats all the protein at morning or at night. They spread it out. It's sort of, it's, it just makes sense. Post-workout feeding, you know, I, I, what's funny is if you, if you follow social media, you'll see how people sort of follow the latest, latest trends. Post-workout nutrition, it's been, it's critically important. It went to, it's not important at all. 
and now it's back to it's pretty important. And I think part of the problem is this: it, it, people don't they they don't ask the right question. So what's the right question? And this is what I would ask: Is there ever is there ever an advantage? And we could deal with bodybuilders, we could deal with endurance athletes, we could deal with power athletes. Is there is there ever an advantage to not eating post workout? Ever in the history of mankind? And of course, the answer has no. It provides zero advantage. So. When people say it doesn't matter if you eat or not post-workout, from a pragmatic, from a practical or pragmatic standpoint, it makes absolutely no sense. Because what you're basically saying is, eh, don't eat. Well, I thought total protein intake was important. And post-workout feeding represents part of total protein intake. Now, where it is important, and this probably applies more to performance athletes, not bodybuilders, are the ones who do two-a-day workouts. You go to any uh, college football program and they come in, they come in in the summer and they start doing two a days immediately. Are you are you suggesting that these these athletes don't need to consume anything post workout when they know they're going to work out again in four hours? Of course not. Of course they're going to consume something post workout. Also, take the endurance athlete who's who's gone out for a two hour run or, or or some of these swimmers, collegiate swimmers, they're spending two to four to five hours a day in the pool. Are you saying the post workout nutrition is is unimportant for them? Of course it's important. The problem is social media, and, and this is the good thing and bad thing about bodybuilding. Bodybuilding really has driven sports nutrition more than any other sport. The problem is bodybuilding is not, it's, it's so subjective. You're, you're basically what? Seeing how someone looks. Whereas in other sports, you either score more points, you cross the finish line, things are easy to measure. And for performance, performance athletes will always do every little thing they can to get better. Whereas it seems like in bodybuilding, they have these sort of little little uh, clicks where some people are like, ah, just eat when you need to eat and get all your calories in. And there's others are like, no, I eat six meals a day. And it's, it's kind of all over the place when, in fact, try to look at it pragmatically. Uh, certainly the data would suggest a post-workout meal. It's not going to hurt you, and it certainly could help you. So, you know, I always say if it helps or has a neutral effect, do it. I mean... Uh, the science is never, uh, it, it's, it's never unanimous. It's not like everyone will agree on everything. Ever. And I think you're, you're exactly right. It's never hurt anybody. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I don't know if this is out of your scope because it's more pertaining to gut health, but there's been a lot of people claiming that you shouldn't, you should actually wait to consume after workout because um, you're in this sympathetic state nervous system wise and your body can't digest correctly then. And you can actually create gut issues if you, consume meals too quickly after, especially if you already have predetermined uh, gut issues. And, and this is something I've been hearing some people who are also in the podcast space say, and they have good reasoning and I kind of go back and forth, but I'm, I've never had anybody ever have issues with consuming a shake or a meal after their workout. And I don't know, I just wanted to throw that out there and see if you had any opinions on it. Well, <laughs> that's actually very interesting. Um, I've never had any, in fact, what, if, if someone were to sit down like immediately after training, whether it's bodybuilding or powerlifting or running or swimming, of course, the, the last thing they're going to do is sit down and have a meal of like bread and steak and potatoes. No one does that. I mean, we, nobody does. But <laughs> can they have a shake? Yeah, because a shake is easily digestible. Now, so it's just kind of funny that people have mentioned that to you. But I will say this. I have a friend of mine who says, Okay, for now, uh, there's no harmful effect of high protein intake, but, he, but she has said, look at the data on protein in the gut microbiome. I said, okay, so I looked at it, and I'm like, huh, wow, uh, protein can affect the gut microbiome, and it might affect it adversely, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, 
I'll be honest, I don't know much of the gut microbiome, even though we're going to do a study, uh, I think next year we're going to do it, looking at high protein intakes and how it affects the gut. Um, and so I always play the devil's advocate. I'm like, okay, let's assume high protein intakes negatively affect the gut, whatever the hell that means, because I, to be honest, I don't know what the hell that means. The bacteria change, the numbers change, the diversity changes, whatever. I don't, I'm not a... I can't even pretend, pretend to be a gut expert. I, I asked the experts, they tell me, and I'm like, I can't even pronounce these bacteria. I, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. So anyways, I say, okay, let's assume it, there's a negative change. Okay, so again, I look at this big picture. I will, let's make the assumption it's bad, however it's defined. Okay, but who eats a lot of protein? One, people who work out. Two, people whose body composition tends to be quite healthy. Um, three, they tend to be non-smokers. Their, their blood pressure tends to be normal. They're not diabetic. So overall, these people are very healthy. So, are, so I pose the question, are you telling me that a change in gut bacteria, whatever that change is, will somehow impact all of these other variables that we know are already good in people who work out? And again, exercise is probably the single most important factor in terms of health. So that little change in the gut bacteria will be manifest in something that we don't know about? I mean, what would happen? And the answer to that is, they'd say, well, I don't know what would happen. Who knows? And that's exactly it. Who knows? But when you look at the big picture, the only people who consume, who purposely consume a lot of protein are people who are healthy. These are people who work, work out. They work their asses off. So does it mean anything? I don't know. And sorry for the sidebar, but I remember... Uh, there was another study looking at sucralose, was it either sucralose or aspartame, one of the artificial sweeteners negatively affecting the gut. And again, I pose the same argument. I'm like, but if you're dealing with people who exercise, who are already healthy, will that even matter? <laughs> and I give sort of the example, it's sort of like, you know, the elephant goes to the doctor, the elephant has a toothache, has a 90% blockage in a coronary artery, and has a pimple on its ass. Um, the pimple on its ass might be the gut microbiome. <laughs> you need to you need to fix the coronary artery and then maybe get to the toothache. You know, so is does everything matter from a health standpoint? No, I you know again I'm a big picture guy. You got to look at the total picture. And I think that's the problem with not only social media but just any controversial topic is it really is splitting hairs and people will find any way to try to try to attack that one thing that they want to make an argument against. You know? Oh my god, yeah, and the, the, uh, you see that a lot. Like for instance, with red meat. Um, you'll see uh, um, observational data suggesting that red meat will increase cancer risk. Well, <laughs> and I would say, okay, let's assume it does. Let's say eating steak increases cancer risk. Are we talking about the fat, overweight guy who drinks beer, watches football, and has a big belly? Or are we talking about the guy who works out like crazy, is lean, is otherwise uh, normotensive, uh, cholesterol is fine? Who are we talking about? Depending on who you're talking about, it may matter for the beer belly, the guy with the beer belly, or, or it may not matter for the guy who works out like crazy and has great body composition, normal blood pressure, et cetera. So again, it, it is splitting hairs, cause, but people who are, let's say, anti-red meat, they're like, see, I told you, red meat's bad for you. Well, it depends. I don't, I, didn't, I don't know if it's bad for you. And let me give you a little story just on the protein thing, thing being bad for you. I had a doctor say, uh, you know, all this protein that you're having your subjects consume is bad. And I said, well, I, what data are you referring to? So what data did you refer to? Data on people with chronic kidney disease. And I was like, okay, well, let me ask you this question. If you got a cardiac patient, let's say someone just uh, entered a hospital, emergency room, had a heart attack. 
would you the next day have them, let's say, just for fun, run five miles? And they're like, well, of course not, because they would die. I'm like, yeah, but what about the guy, the college runner uh, who does cross country? Could he run five miles? Well, of course, because they're trained. Okay, well, in one case, running will kill you. In the other case, running is good for you. So is running good for you or is running bad for you? It depends on the population. Same with protein. I mean, if you have chronic kidney disease, okay, maybe you might want to cut back on it. If you're a healthy athlete, it eh, probably doesn't matter. And again, people sort of lose their perspective when they start saying, you know, red meat is bad, sucralose is bad, blah, blah, blah. Everything's freaking bad. And it's like, no, it might be bad for some people and it doesn't matter for other people. I'm so glad you brought up the kidney thing because I think that's another one of those those big misconceptions. And, oh, and yeah. basically what you're saying and what you've seen from stuff is unless you have a current kidney disease, protein is not going to negatively impact your kidney. Yes, it ha that's absolutely true. But here's what's really interesting. I don't, I don't know anything about kidney disease, but just for fun, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to read some of the data on protein and chronic kidney disease. And there's even within that category, you know, the people who study renal physiology, even they're not in agreement as to whether lowering protein intake even helps. In fact, I was reading a paper where the conclusion was basically, we have no evidence to show that lowering protein intake in, in patients with chronic kidney, kidney disease actually helps renal function. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. So it's not like even amongst people who study chronic kidney disease agree like, oh, you got to lower protein. Because here's the trade-off. If you lower protein intake in anyone who's sick, what happens? Well, they lose lean body mass. Now you're, you're introducing a new set of problems. So the question is, what problems do you want your patient to have? And again, there's no clear cut answers, but even, uh, you know, the point is even amongst that population, you know, eating a lot of a pro, uh, lowering protein intake may not always manifest itself in some clinically good outcomes. That's really interesting. And I'm again, glad you brought that up because I've heard so many different opinions on that, but I haven't heard somebody go into that field and actually talk about it. Um, going back to um, the gut stuff a little bit, there's been another fad that I was curious about your opinion on. Um, so basically, like we know that the thermic effect of food when it comes to protein is higher. Um, and that may or may not cause more stress on the digestive tract. And that's kind of the claim these people are making. So a lot of people are doing like meatless Mondays where they take protein out for a day to try to ease their gut. And then there's also these people that are in the bodybuilding space that will take it out for a day because when they return to high protein, they claim that their sensitivity to the muscle protein synthesis effect is actually increased. And the people who have claimed this, I actually really respect. So I'm kind of like in limbo, like, it might have, like, I understand that the body adapts to a lot of things. And so a lot of times when we do take something out and then we come back to it, it's kind of like a super compensation effect. Um, right. What is your opinion on that? Is there any studies to prove any of this, correct? Now, when you say meatless, you mean no meat or no protein? Like no milk, no fish, no chicken? They, they call it meatless, I think, just because it rhymes. It's like meatless Monday is a thing, you right. know? But essentially, they're just, they're cutting their protein in half. Okay, so there's Or lower, Yeah. Just very minimal. Um, and their min minimal would be what? The RDA? 0 0.8 grams per kilo? Or? Less than that. Or uh, per kilo, yeah, probably. I know a lot of people who do vegan days where their protein will be really low. And then I know a lot of people say they're eating 180 grams a day. They cut it down to 90 grams a day. Like they'll just hmm. cut it in half. Okay. Um, so the question is what? <laughs> Whether this so makes sense or not? I guess, yeah. I guess a couple things would be, number one, do you think that protein would have more stress on the digestive tract or is it merely just burns more calories to digest and absorb? And then two, is there any merit to lowering protein for a day, whether that's for digestion or 
stimulating muscle protein synthesis a little bit more when you return? Um, I can't imagine that there's merit to it from a exercise recovery point of view. Um, if you work out hard, you need dietary protein to recover and skipping a day certainly isn't going to help. If anything, it might hurt. And if you did it once a week, what's that? 12% of your 12% of your total training time, you're not eating enough protein to me in the long run, that's going to have a negative effect on recovery. So if you're in a performance sport where it's first, second or third, you might, instead of finishing first, you might end up finishing third. Um, Bodybuilding is a little trickier because you're not really performing. You're trying to look a certain way and you could actually lose lean body mass, but proportionally lose more fat mass and look better on stage just because again, you're creating an illusion of how you look. Now, does it make sense to give your digestive system or your GI tract a rest? However, that is defined. Um, I, I can't think of a reason why you would, because the whole point of your GI tract, your small intestine, your, you know, your colon is to digest food. And I've never seen any evidence to show that you have to rest it. I mean, um, that, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't make any sense. Good enough and, for me. Yeah. And in fact, here's the, th I would say this, if you get people who, uh, let's sort of step away from bodybuilding a little, cause I think it's, it, it, the rules are almost a little different. Let's say it's someone who's training hard for an event. Do you really want to compromise 12% of your, your days, uh, where you eat insufficiently? Um, to me, that would impair, ultimately impair performance. So, um, but again, bodybuilders aren't performing. They're just trying to get a certain look. So it may not matter. But there would be no benefit from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint. Their, their, their argument is that when you return, like let's say you do low protein on Sunday on your rest day, when you come back to a high protein diet on Monday, you're going to respond better to that protein when you consume it. But what about, well, I, you know where they're getting that from. There's a, they're looking at the data, for instance, from carbohydrate intake, that if you cut carbs for a while um, and then you, you go on a high carb diet, there's a super compensation so that you store more glycogen. But you can't do that with protein because you can't store protein. Now, the question is, let's say, let's assume that the day after when you bump up your protein, that muscle protein synthesis is more elevated. Well, again, there's a trade-off. The day before, muscle protein synthesis was depressed. So <laughs> it all evens out in a sense. So you, you, you depress it one day and you elevate it the next day. I mean, why not just keep it somewhat elevated all the time? And I think you'll just feel better too. Perfect. So going off this now, I'm curious, what's your thoughts on intermittent fasting? Intermittent fasting, I think if the goal is just to lose weight, I mean, I think it works. It seems to work just as well as chronic restriction of calories. I think uh, the, maybe the, the, the thing that makes it more attractive to people is that compliance or adherence might be better because you know that there's a day you get to eat more, even though the next day it kind of sucks because you can't eat, <laughs> you know. Um, but other than that, I, I see nothing magical about intermittent fasting. To me, it's just another way. It's just another strategy to cut calories. Is there any negative impact on lean muscle tissue? I think there could be, um, particularly if you cut back on protein. And I would assume that people who do it, uh, particularly on the physique side, if, they're, if their protein intake is high, and really what they're cutting back is carbs and fat, then they should be able to maintain lean body mass. Uh, but you'll notice in it, for intermittent fasting, the people who do it, again, are physique people. They're not people who, who uh, are in sports where you have to perform, perform a task or a skill. Got it, got it. So um, one thing I really wanted to kind of quiz you on is protein variety. Is there any 
need to change the proteins you're eating meal to meal? Is there any reason not to repeat the same protein? Um, and then if we can get into a little bit of like, um, some people call it bioavailability, but essentially like certain proteins being better than other proteins because of the uh, amino acid content. I think, I think the simple answer to that is if you're eating a limited amount of calories and let's say your protein intake is kind of marginal, let's say it's, you know, one to 1.2 grams per kilo or 1.5, then I think protein quality might matter. And, and in that case, it has to be the, I think the milk-based proteins are best, you know, whey and casein, and then you go down to uh, the animal meats, you know, beef, uh, chicken, you know, beef, chicken, fish, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're eating already a high protein diet, and let's say high is defined as anything above one gram per kilo, quality matters much less because you're just getting such a volume of amino acids. So, um, so if you're eating not much, I'd say quality matters. If you're eating a lot already, then it probably does not matter. Um, so I, I don't think there's a need to change protein types. I mean, the human body was made to basically consume the same stuff all the time if you wanted. Um, so the whole idea of variety, I mean, I've seen no evidence to show that you have to do a variety of different kinds of protein. Now, does that apply to vegan or vegetarian uh, protein sources as well? Assuming the person is getting enough, hmm. is that what the same? They, yeah, but what do they eat? Um, I mean, <laughs> so. Are you a vegan? I am not a vegan, no. Oh. I, I love meat too much. I love dairy. I, I love everything. So um, I, I just eat. But um, but there's a lot of, I've had a lot of, um, I've actually had plenty of vegan and vegetarian nutrition clients over the years. Um, and it's obviously difficult to get their protein intake up enough without supplementing with leucine or making sure they're having creatine to help performance or anything like that. Uh, but let's assume that the person is eating the minimum amount. They're eating enough. Is that the same as eating the same amount of protein from animal product? Like if you had two? Uh, hell, uh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Why? If, if you get a vegan and a meat eater, and let's say they're somewhere in the middle range, you know, 1.5 to 1.8 grams per kilo, the quality of, of uh, especially milk-based proteins and eggs and meats is far above, I mean, it's far above what, rice and beans? I don't, see, I don't know what vegans eat because I'm not a vegan. I mean, what are you eating, pounds of beans all day? I mean, or lentils? I, that's a, one, the quality of it is just not good. Um, the, you'd have to make up for the lack of quality with a lot of volume. So it always puzzles me when I see vegans who are kind of overweight. I'm like, what the hell are you eating? I thought you, you know, if you're not eating animal stuff, which has, you know, it's pretty calorically dense. What are you eating to get so fat? Um, but yeah, again, the, the quality issue only matters when your, your intake, your total intake is low. So it's just, I mean, it is hard. We have one out of all, and we've probably tested three, 400 people in our lab. We've had maybe four vegan athletes, uh, two vegan bodybuilders. He gets all his protein, almost all of it from protein shakes, pea protein, uh, rice protein. Um, he's doing like six shakes a day because he's, he's like, I can't get protein with food. I mean, I can't eat rice and beans all day. So they do it through shakes. They do it through shakes, which is kind of gross. I couldn't drink six shakes a day. <laughs> no. And the hard part too is like, I know like Brussels sprouts or broccoli or certain veggies are higher in protein, but the amount you have to eat is like, oh, you're going to be so bloated and just full. Um, now, is that because just so the listeners fully understand when you say the quality is different, is it just a matter of it doesn't have as much leucine? Like what is the exact reason why the quality is not as well? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's the limiting amount of leucine, particularly in, in vegetable based proteins. Um, and also just the essential amino acids. There's just a lot more of the essential amino acids in your 
in your uh, animal-based proteins, your milk-based and your meat-based proteins. So, you know, and here's the thing, you know, I tend even sort of a, a, a sidebar discussion on, on animal-based proteins. I actually think the best form of protein that you can consume is actually fish and not because of the protein, but I mean, the protein is great, but because it has, uh, you know, the omega-3 fats. And to me, if you could eat fish all the time, and in fact, the, you know, cultures that tend to consume a lot of fish like Japan, they tend to be quite healthy. So, so overall, I think fish is great. Uh, after fish, I would say milk protein is probably your best bet. And but there are some people who refuse to touch milk-based protein, and that's okay. I actually think that's really interesting. I read an article um, on T Nation years ago, and it was like, um, eat like a eat like you're in Japan to be super lean or something weird like that. So I clicked on it. And it was like they eat with chopsticks, so it slows them down. They have some kind of tea or soup before, which helps their digestion. They eat yeah. white rice, which is easy on the gut. They eat a lot of fish, so they're getting a ton mm -hmm. of omegas and lean proteins. And it made sense, like completely and, made sense. Yeah. And they eat a lot of vegetables. I mean, um, you know, actually, I was in Japan last year. And what struck me in Japan, it sort of reminded me of the United States back when I was a kid. There was no fat people. And, and when you did see someone fat, it was like, whoa, there's – there's a fat person, which is really weird. You don't see it in Japan. So we went out to dinner with a friend of mine, and you might know him. His name's Darren Willoughby. He's a professor at Baylor. He's probably the largest professor in the world. He's like 270 pounds. And we go out to dinner, and, and we look at the food. We're like, I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, I need two of these. And he'd be like, I need five of these <laughs> five plates because the serving – the servings really are kind of, I mean, they're probably what they should be, but we're, Americans are so used to these gigantic servings. We're like, oh my God, I need more food. This is crazy, <laughs> you know, because we're kind of spoiled here, I guess. But, um, but yeah, their serving size are, you know, quite small. That's why no one's fat over there. <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, another, another topic that um, came up when I mentioned that you were coming on the podcast is collagen. Collagen is a big rave right now. So it is. It's very good. But there's a lot of people who are almost relying on collagen. And, you know, from what I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the leucine content is not the same inside of collagen. It sucks, man. It sucks. So let's talk about that because I think it's a misconception. And I, wanna, I want people to understand, like, what the benefits of collagen actually are because I think there are people who are trying to supplement collagen as their protein because on a, on, a, on a tub of collagen, it says it has this much protein and they assume it's the same. So can you fill us in on that? Well, I think, well, one, the quality of it is just poor. And, uh, but the funny part is there is data on, on the protein helping with skin. <laughs> so if you want to have a pretty face, you know, uh, take your collagen. But to use it as a replacement for, you know, let, the most popular protein is milk-based protein for whey. The data is just not there. So uh, it's funny. That's another bandwagon issue. You know, the gut microbiome, collagen, what else? Uh, there's some, uh, a keto diet. I mean, everyone's jumping on these weird bandwagons. But the data is not there. The data is not there. There's no evidence to show that collagen protein by itself is a good form of protein, particularly as it applies to enhancing muscle protein synthesis or helping with recovery or delayed onset muscle soreness or any of that stuff. Good. I, I think that's really important because um, I've had women who had a baby and I recommend it to them because, you know, it's great for your skin, your hair, your nails, stuff like that. Um, I've heard things about joint health, but I'm glad you cleared that up because I, I just – Everything has its own application. And I think that's the most important thing to remember, right? Like where are you apl applying it and why? No, and actually I'm glad you brought that up because, <clears throat> you know, I sort of beat up on collagen, but there's a role for it. And in fact, there's a role for a lot of supplements where, you know, people might say, oh, it's a waste of time. For instance, I've heard, I've had a lot of people say, oh, 
fish oil is a waste because if you look at the data on fish oil, it's sort of all over the place, which it is, it's kind of all over the place. Some data show it, shows it helps, uh, body comp, others show it doesn't. Some data shows it's good for the heart, others show nothing. So yeah, it's all over the place. However, if you don't eat fish, then you gotta take fish oil, you know? And I have friends who literally don't eat fish. Another one I've seen is with branched-chain amino acids. Well, why take branched-chain amino acids when whole proteins are better? Which is true, all proteins are better. But you know who takes branched-chain amino acids? Endurance athletes, for instance, cyclists. If they're out on a two, three, or four-hour bike ride, they're not sucking down whey protein. They're taking branched-chain amino acids. Why? Because there's data to show branched-chain amino acids limits or lowers delayed onset muscle soreness, which allows you to recover and train the next day. Because there's, there's nothing good about being sore. Being sore does not help any sport at all. So are brands changed useless? Well, some people say it's useless. Well, again, put context to it. Everything has a role, but you have to be specific to the context. Same with collagen. I, you know, I beat the crap out of it, but hey, it's good for your skin. I mean, maybe it's good, and data showing it might be good for your joints. Um, is it a waste? No. Again, it depends on your goal. Everything, everything has a purpose depending on your goal. So... Speaking of branch change, because that's definitely something I wanted to talk about, if your daily protein intake is more than sufficient enough, you're getting enough amino acids in your bloodstream, is there still merit to having BCAs during a workout? Because I think it's one of those things too, and I've actually even heard from like a neurological or even a placebo effect, if it makes you feel like you can work harder, then great, take them, there's no negative. But then there's also the argument like, well, the super jacked bodybuilder who is still doing fasted cardio and drinks on a ton of BCAs is doing it and he's jacked. So maybe we should do it too. Um, what are your thoughts on like, the, is there any merit to it? Is there any need for it? If your protein needs are being met? I mean, is there a need for it? No. Uh, if you, particularly if your protein needs are being met again, although you mentioned a placebo effect, placebo effect is real. I mean, so if it, if you think it helps you, it, it actually helps you. Um, if you want to lower, if you don't want to consume protein during a workout, it certainly could help with delayed onset muscle soreness. It's one of those where I think people tend to present things as an either or proposition. It's you're either getting enough protein, therefore you don't need branch chains, when in fact, why couldn't you do both? What's the harm of doing both? And people say, well, it lowers the amount of money in your wallet. Well, that's a finance question. That's not a supplement question. So if you want to give financial advice, fine. But if we're just sticking sort of to the science of it, you know, there's, there's not a harm to it, you know, from a physiologic standpoint. So, um, you know, I see, I see nothing wrong with it. Um, but again, I think the, the, the value for particularly brand change is probably more for the endurance athlete who isn't going to consume a bucket full of whey protein while they, while they exercise. Right. Have, have you, are you familiar with the research on, um, and I, I heard this from Lane Norton, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but way back, like uh, supplementing leucine between meals. And I don't know if, I can't remember if it was the reason behind it was to keep muscle protein synthesis elevated throughout the day. Um, there was a lot of, I don't know about hate, but just arguments towards him for that um, because he was a amino acid researcher. So people were just uh -huh. saying, oh, you know, you're just repping what you went to school for. So what are your thoughts on that? Is there any merit to that? I mean, is there, I would say one, is there any harm to it? And the answer to that is no. Is there, is, can it possibly help? Uh, yeah. I mean, even if it's, if it helps marginally, I think it's one of those things where, again, people take sort of this either or view of things when in fact, if you want to take leucine between meals, you know, it, it may have, it may have some merit, maybe it's marginal. 
there's no data on it per se, and certainly not in humans where you just give someone leucine capsules between meals because let's face it, in the end, if you get people who are already protein adequate or, or already a high protein diet, they probably have already very high levels of leucine. So who would it help? It might help those who are on the low end. Let's say you're consuming one gram per kilo of protein, sort of the low end. Those are the people that might help. And again, but those are the people who aren't going to take supplements. <laughs> people, people are eating one gram per kilo of protein. They're not going to, you know, like, you know, you want me to take capsules every three hours? What are you crazy? I mean, so, you know, from a pragmatic standpoint, eh, you know, it's difficult to study in humans scientifically. The, the only time I've ever even used that strategy, and I actually used it during a meal versus between was with a vegan client because I knew that they just weren't going to be getting the right amount of aminos. So, um, and, and it seemed like it helped. So I think that's the only time I've ever, right. ever really gone into it. Um, what, when we are consuming protein with a meal, is there any difference made when we consume a meal with just protein or protein and fats or protein and carbs? Or like, what do the effects of essentially pairing meals have on muscle protein synthesis and protein or any? Right. I think, well, I think human body, the digestive system is built to digest carbs, fat, and protein simultaneously. We have enzymes uh, throughout the GI tract for that. So I don't think the idea of, you know, consuming just protein or just protein and carbs or whatever, it doesn't really make sense because your body's built to, to, to digest everything. Is there an advantage to it? I, uh, from a, an athletic performance point of view none that i can think of from a body building point of view um none that i can think of unless your goal is just to cut back on calories which you know if you're trying to lose fat mass okay perfect so the last thing i really wanted to quiz you on before we get going is uh and i believe you've done a little bit of research or you're at least familiar with this is creatine um what is the benefit of creatine who should be taking this is there any reason to cycle it can we kind of get the the rundown of creatine uh, creatine, what? Creatine's awesome. I've been taking creatine since probably before you were born. <laughs> Actually, when were you born? 92. You know what? It's funny, 92. Okay, no, kind of a uh, sidebar story. I did a, I used to do a radio show in Dallas way back when I was in grad school. And I think that my first appearance on that radio show was before you were born. It was like 1989, 1990. And I came on the show and the host of the show, I said, hey, I just read this really cool study about something called creatine. Apparently, if you take it, you know, you gain lean body mass, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, really? What the hell's creatine? And, and, you know, as you know, 30 years later, well, creatine is like the number one uh, supplement from a science standpoint. Um, but since then, I've taken it on and off. And now regularly, I've probably been taking three grams a day for the last, I don't even know. I've been taking it so long, I don't even know. However, everyone should take creatine. In fact, I tell my students, even if you don't care about bodybuilding, and, and I, uh, I'd say out of all my exercise science students at Nova Southeastern University, I'd say yeah, there's a 10 to 20%. They're interested in the physique stuff. The rest will just do whatever sport. And I say, let's say you don't care about gaining lean mass. Take it for your brain. The data on creatine for, for improving brain function is pretty cool. But we also know it increases lean body mass. It helps strength, power, performance. It even helps endurance performance. It almost helps it in a way, you know, I remember talking to a creatine researcher about this. I'm like, creatine seems to help everything. It's really kind of weird how it helps everything. And he's like, yeah, it is. If, 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 if a drug company had discovered it, it'd be a really, you know, it'd be an expensive drug because everyone would want it. Um, but it's something, you know, whether you're, uh, you're uh, young, whether you're old. In fact, when, when, when my daughters were playing softball when they were little, we had them taking creatine because what? Softball is a power sport. It helps you hit a ball part. Um, 
every athlete, particularly in the strength power side, should be taking creatine. And creatine is probably one of the, it's probably the single best supplement you can take for your skeletal muscle and also for your brain. Um, the data on it, in fact, if I see another study showing that creatine helps with exercise, I'm like, come on, we already know it. There's like 300 studies. The cool studies that are coming out are actually on creatine and brain function, creatine, how it affects sleep. If you're sleep deprived, you know, creatine helps your brain work better. Um, some of the data on neuromuscular diseases, um, creatine might help as well. I mean, it helps so many things. I think everybody should take like three grams a day just for health reasons. If you don't care about bodybuilding, just take it for health reasons. That's crazy. Actually, as time goes on, I've been in the industry almost probably eight years now. Like I swear every year I learn something new about creatine and it just kind of okay. keeps growing. And same thing yeah, I've cool. always, and you don't have to cycle it, right? I mean, I've never yeah. really stopped. There's no, no point in no point in cycling it. That's like cycling protein. Who the hell cycles protein? Oh yeah, your people the once a week cycle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there any is there any studies that are that you're getting ready to do or that are coming out that you're really excited about or that are like kind of uh, um, paradigm shattering or anything like that? Well, there's a couple of things I want to mention, particularly for the women in your audience. We just finished a one year study on trained females. So these are track and field athletes, a few bodybuilders, a few uh, endurance athletes, and we had them on a high protein diet for one year. Uh, they were averaging about 2.3 grams per kilo over one year. We looked at bone mass because that's one of the things clinical nutritionists were like, oh, it's bad for your bones. I'm like, what? Nothing happened, bone mass. No differences uh, in whole body bone mass, uh, bone mineral density. We even looked at lumbar spine. There was no change. It's not bad for your bones. We looked at kidney function. It's not bad for your kidneys. Again, but we already knew that, right? Um, that's a one-year study, but I guarantee you when it comes out, oh, you need to do a 10-year study in women. But, you know, there's always the 10-year people, and these are people who never do any studies. So, so that's one. We're actually in the middle of a study. We're going to do post-testing next week. I'm not familiar with some of the gene stuff, but we're looking at a gene called the FTO gene. It's the fat mass and obesity associated gene. People who carry the gene tend to be fatter than people who don't have the gene, which is kind of cool. Um, we did preliminary study looking at 110 athletes, and these are already lean people. We're not talking about fat people, so they're already lean. And we found that those who carry the gene, the FTO gene, actually carried more body fat than those who did. Although visually, if you were to just look at them, you're like, well, they're all lean. Well, even when you take lean people, the ones who carry the gene still carry more fat. So we're doing a study where we, we're getting, uh, I'm going to try to get about 50 people. We're going to put them on a, a, on a hypocaloric diet. So they're going to cut calories by 25%, or at least that's their goal. And then we're going to find out who carries the gene. You know, do you carry the FTO gene? I call it the fat, fat gene. Um, or you don't carry the gene. Who loses more fat mass when you cut calories? And the answer is, I don't know, because we haven't finished the study. <laughs> so we'll find out soon. <laughs> that's really interesting. I think it's going to tell us a lot, too, because can you even fight against that gene, right? And that's going to be a whole new rabbit hole to start digging into. Yeah, no, okay. I, I've asked myself this question. Let's say I find no difference. Um, that would suggest that you can overcome your genetics, right? Okay, your genes suck, but if you force yourself, you know, you could overcome it. Or let's say there is a difference in that the people who carry the gene didn't lose as much fat. Is that a good or bad thing that you know you have the gene? Because I, I actually have the gene. I tested myself. Um, I'm like, huh, so I guess I'm allowed to be fatter because I have the gene. You know, so it's one of those things where which one do you really want? Do you want to know that you, you, you're more prone to being fat? <laughs> or do you not want to know? I, I don't know. But we'll find out. I think it'll be interesting to see what data we have.
Well, I follow all your stuff, man. So I'm excited for that to come out. And I really, really do appreciate you coming on the show. This was a blast for me to just kind of geek out and oh, learn from one of the best, man. So um, before I let you go, where can everybody find all your information that you are putting out? You're in your team and, and everything like that. I think the best place to go is uh, look at the International Society of Sports Nutrition website. The web address is issn.net, issn.net. Also, if people have a chance, uh, people in their audience who love sports nutrition science, they should come. Uh, we hold our national conference each year in the middle of June. And in 2000, uh, uh, next year, 2019, our, our national conference is June 13 to 15 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, after that year, we're going to have our conference just in Florida. And I know you're sort of on the opposite side. So, but if you ever want to come to Florida, our conference will be in Florida starting 2020. We'll be there every year. So, and again, you can meet all the experts in sports nutrition. Almost everyone shows up there and it's, it's a great networking opportunity. And the cool part is, it's one of those conferences where you look around, you're like, wow, everyone's in great shape. I mean, how many science conferences have you gone to where everyone works out? It's kind of weird, actually. It's like, I go to other science conferences and no one works out. So it's like, wow, everyone, everyone's like trained like crazy here. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, if you've never been to our conference, you got to go because I think you'd have a blast. And, and you know what? You could bring your, your podcast there, interview people, you know, post it on your page and whatnot. And I think you'd get a lot of great information. Oh yeah. I will definitely be there in 2019. Um, I was planning, I wanted to go this year, but I had a trip already uh, booked out with the family. So I'll be there in, in Vegas is like an hour and a half flight for me. So you can expect oh, me to be there. Cool. Very cool. And then 2020, you should come. It's, it's at uh, Daytona beach. I love oh, that. Nice. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be Functional Muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.